1: well, again, happy Palm Sunday to everybody. It's so good to see all of you who are here with us in person, and it's so good to see those of you who are joining us online. Uh, whether you're in person, online, live, listening to the podcast later, watching the video later, uh, just know that you were prayed for, cared for, and loved before you even showed up today or turned on the screen uh, whenever you're listening. And so we're so grateful, and, and I don't know about you, I love when we have opportunities for our children to come up and to sing and to read passages, and uh, just such a blessing to know that they're being poured into with the Word of God, just like we are as we meet here upstairs every Sunday morning. If we've not met yet, my name is JP. I would love an opportunity to meet you later on after the service. But as we are, as we mentioned, we are closing out a current series that we're in called In the World. The idea of how do we have how do we not compromise? How do we have our faith? How do we serve well, love well, stand firm in a a bow down culture, in a world in which we learn that it's not as friendly to believers as it once was? How do we still with love and integrity and grace and truth have an impact on the world around us? How can we be in the world and yet still remain not of the world? And so we're going to dive into Daniel chapter 6 today, and our, our sermon passage, or our sermon ideas, uh, this idea of loving, or excuse me, live such good lives. Live such good lives. What does it mean to have the good life? That if you were to poll people and ask, you know, what does the good life look like? A lot of people probably say, it's having so much money that you wouldn't have to worry about anything more, anymore. It would be to be able to travel to different places and have different homes in different places. It would be to have, not have to do any work, to just have someone else do things for us. Maybe it would be to just not, just to live in a a lavish, comfortable life, like the lifestyles of the rich and famous, uh, if you remember that uh, years and years ago. And it's just this idea that maybe we think what the good life is, we attribute it to wealth, maybe comfort, maybe ease of life, and yet we also know that those who are wealthy, those who have all the comforts, the creature comforts you could hope for, those whose lives are so easy still have so many problems. There's an emptiness that when we try to put our hope into anything other than Jesus, there's an emptiness that we may try to fill it up with possessions or fill it in with money or uh, where we live or whatever it is. And we can get to the point where we search so so much for something other than the truly good life to fulfill us. And so, Throughout the generations, throughout thousands of years, there's been different ideas of what the good life is. That Aristotle talked about that happiness is finding your place in the world and playing it. So it's less about the comforts and it's more about finding purpose. Maybe it's the idea of of just being able to not have to worry about anything. And yet, what I don't want to do, what I don't want to do is to look down on the fact or to feel like we, we, sh- we need to still recognize the blessings we've been given. We recognize that everyone who hears my voice today is in the upper percentages of income in the world. That we, we don't feel rich compared to maybe those around us, but compared to billions of people, we are the rich. We are the ones that other people look at and would say they have the good life. And yet, without a show of hands, I would assume that many of us still have problems, wounds, difficulties, insecurities. And maybe the good life the world has to offer isn't the good life God presents us with. So what does it look like for us us to live such good lives. And where do we get that specific phrase? Well, from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 11 and 12, it starts off with the idea of, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. And I kept, I highlighted that phrase because we've been talking about the idea of what it means to live in a world where the Christian faith and and faith in general, but specifically the Christian faith is culturally we are exiles now. It's one of those where the world is not Jerusalem, that we have now entered into a season in a world in which the culture around us is more like Babylon, hedonistic, pluralistic, and hostile towards faith, than it is to Jerusalem. And we often wanna go back to how things were, but when we look back with rose-colored glasses, we miss that there were still issues, and there have been for generations, because all generations are fallen. And yet we are culturally exiles. And so first Peter, Peter uses this verbiage as he talks about it. So it's showing us that this idea of exile is not just for Daniel. It's something that we as Christians experience still today. So, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And then the next slide highlights live such good lives among the pagans. Among the Gentiles was the original idea, but it's basically, it's saying, because we're all Gentiles, because most of us aren't Jewish, so this is the idea of live such good lives among those who don't believe, who don't follow, who are different, who have a different faith, or no faith at all. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day he visits us. So friends, as we take the next few moments to unpack Daniel chapter 6, to look at his life and say, what is it to lead a good life? How do we live such good lives that those who are far from God would see how we live and not give us credit, but give God glory And would want to have a relationship with him. Before we unpack that in Daniel chapter 6, would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you that this is a day you've made. We rejoice and are glad in it. We thank you that your mercies are new every morning, including this one. I thank you that for each person who hears my voice, Lord, that they are deeply, deeply loved by you. The love that you have for us is without condition. There's nothing we can do to make you love us anymore. We can't earn it. There's nothing you, we can do to make you love us any less. We can't lose it. It's a, f- it's a gift. May we receive that gift today. And may we receive whatever it is that you have for us this morning. I pray that as we dive, in, sure that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're going to be in Daniel chapter 6. If you want to turn your Bibles there, if you have it on your phone, if you brought a Bible, great. If you don't, there's a Bible that's in the um, seat rack in front of you. Um, And then if you're watching online, maybe you're aware that there's a Bible tab that you can actually follow along and select Daniel chapter 6 in order to follow along with our passage as well. With that said, I want to give a little bit of context because here in Daniel 6, as we start off, we realize that we're going to find out very soon that Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king that we've learned about the past few weeks, the one who sent Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, the one that after they survived and there was a fourth one who looked like a son of the gods in the middle of the fire, that that same king ended up praising God, called him the most high God, and that anyone who said anything bad about the most high God would be severely punished. And yet Nebuchadnezzar... By the time he reached Daniel 6, is no longer king. So his time was numbered. And we see this in Daniel chapter 5. We're not going to unpack all of it. Then he had his son Belshazzar, Belshazzar. excuse me, And he was either a direct son or, or a descendant or um, a successor. And then even then, at the end of that time, as Daniel 5.30 says, that very night Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. So to give us context, Daniel now has spent years serving Nebuchadnezzar and years serving, that, and now there's a brand new king. Someone brand new that Daniel has been elevated in the courts, but now he's a Mede, he's part of the Median Persian Empire So he's starting all over again. And so how is Daniel going to still have an impact? How is it that he's still going to be able to show who God is in a culture that is constantly changing? and leaders that he doesn't necessarily want to follow? and leaders that don't follow the Lord and yet God has still called him to serve well? What does that look like? See, we're going to unpack that according to this passage, We see a few things about what the good life actually is. It's not about comfort, it's not about wealth, it's not about ease. It's about being able to do a few of these things and to experience this life that's maybe not good as in easy, but good as in valuable. So the first one that we see here is that the good life is distinguished. It stands out among the rest, it looks different. Here's how we start our story, starting in verse one and then the verse three will be on the screen in a moment. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. So even in the very beginning of Darius' reign, Daniel had been so well respected by the previous government that instead of being slain, like whenever a, a new kingdom would come, they would often get rid of all the royal courts or all the people who were supportive of the previous king, Daniel was still elevated to one of the top three administrating roles in the nation. The satraps were made accountable to them, so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He stood out in such a way, he distinguished himself, he set himself apart both in his work ethic and his ability and his humility to serve the king. And the language that he was able to learn, the literature he was able to read, he stood out in so many different ways that he set himself apart. And as we all know, or as we may have experienced, that when you set yourself apart, you often put a target on your back. Now, I wonder if we were to talk to people around us, if for those of us who know and love Jesus, that if we were to talk to classmates, to neighbors, to coworkers, to friends, would they look at our lives and would they say, you know, that person is different. They're distinguished, there's something different about them. That there are some ways that we distinguish ourselves because we wanna do a good job of not watching certain things, not listening to certain things, being able to, to guard our hearts in those sorts of ways. But what other ways can we distinguish ourselves? Because in some senses, when we want to have an impact to pour into people, it's really easy for us to want to blend in as much as possible in order then still be able to have an impact. Because we're afraid that if we just stand up right off the bat, that that would burn a bridge rather than build one. And so how do we not burn bridges? How do we build bridges? But how do we stand firm? Elliot Clark, in his book, Evangelism as, as Exile, says it this way. He says, As I see it, one of the greatest hindrances to everyday evangelism is our desire to fit in and be normal. But exile, coming face-to-face with the reality that we don't belong, has a way of opening up our horizons to the possibility of being different and strange. Now, for some of you, you're like, I've always been different and strange. I'm just glad that there's some affirmation that I can go do it now, Right? <laughs> But the idea here is not just to be different for different sake and not just to be strange for strangeness sake, but in order to be different and to be strange in the sense of how we are distinguished. That when people look at you, do they know what you stand for? Because as the uh, famous, uh, I won't say theologian, famous person, uh, Alexander Hamilton said that if you stand for nothing, what will you fall for? That's actually just from the play. I don't know if you actually said that. That's okay. Um, just want to be honest with you guys. Uh, so, recognizing that we know that if we don't stand for truth for the gospel, but also gr- the grace of the gospel, that as Chris Hodges says, grace without truth, or truth without grace is mean, and grace without truth is meaningless. It's when they're combined that there's this life-changing power. It's not either or it's both and. And as we've said from Jim van Iper, and he talks about how love without truth is not really love, and truth without love is not really truth. They're not mutually exclusive. they're both one and the same, or they're both part of the same thing. So in our desire to fit in, to not offend are there times in which we lose our witness because we don't look any different? Would anyone look at you and say, the only way that I can attack them, their character is so good, they're so hard-working, they're so studious, they're so kind, they're so humble, they're so wise. The only thing that we could even think to attack them about would be the fact that they have a faith in Jesus. See, there is an author named Ben Sixsmith, and he wrote in, uh, in an article in a blog um, this idea. And he says it this way. The whole context of this article is saying someone who's a non-Christian, he does not follow Jesus, he doesn't have a relationship with God, he's, he's an atheist, and he talks about how, you know, if Christians aren't any different, why would I want, from what I'm, how I'm living, why would I want to be like them? What's the difference that Christianity has to offer? Here's how he puts it. I'm not religious, so it is not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. Notice not hated for not doing so, not torn aside, not destructive, but uncomfortable. If they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much like they want to become more like me. Friends, I'm not coming in and I'm not trying to tell those of us who know and love Jesus to just go and start being super weird all the time. What I'm saying is how do we love in a way that distinguishes us? How do we live in a way that distinguishes us? How do we live in a way that people say, do you know the best worker we have is so-and-so? And they may not say it's because they love God, but they would know that about you. Because if we do all things as if for the Lord and not for man, as Colossians 3 tells us to, then we're going to stand out among the rest because we're going to have a higher perspective and because we're gonna love when it's hard to love and we're gonna speak truth when it's hard to speak truth and we're gonna do the right thing even when nobody's watching because we know that God is with us. We distinguish ourselves, we set ourselves aside A good life is not one that fits in. It's one that is distinguished. Number two, and this one might be a little hard for us, but it's important for us to unpack. A good life is one that is tested. A good life is one that is tested. Let's see how this unravels, or excuse me, unpacks. Let's see, let's go down to verse seven. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors, oh, excuse me, uh, forgive me, uh, verse 5, it's not on the screen, but this is what I wanted to say. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, "May King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed. Had they, all the administrators agreed? No, because we know Daniel didn't. But that's the little types of lies that kind of get people to say, oh, everyone's saying this. Anyways, we've all agreed that, you should, that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. That's Daniel 6, verse 7. I put the wrong reference. Forgive me. But the idea is that, remember, King Darius is brand new in this role as the king of the empire. We discussed a few weeks ago that religion is a way that he knew, and that, and at the time, they knew that they could bring people all together by forcing them to follow one specific God. And so, what the satraps and administrators, except for Daniel, everyone else says, if you, if we could just get everyone to not pray to anybody else other than you, King Darius, may you live forever. Talk about flattery, talk about giving someone an inflated sense of self. For 30 days, you're the only one that they're going to pray for. How does that sound? Well, to his pride, that probably sounds pretty good. But to his rule, that seems like it's a unifying force to get all of the people to look to him rather than to their own gods. And so he says that he decides, yes, we'll do this. He puts it into action. And here's the problem, is that some of us, we wonder, why would God allow someone who clearly loves him like Daniel, why would God allow Daniel's faith to be put to the test? Why would God allow us to go through difficult things to test us? Recently uh, there was state testing um, for Shaylin, she at least isn't quite old enough yet, and She was worried about it and just trying to do a good job and she was, you know, just wanted to do well. And we kept trying to remind her that this test actually is testing the school and the teachers as to how well people are learning. It's not about you and your value. It's the idea of testing. And so the test doesn't declare this person is good or bad. The test allows us to know the depth or the quality of, in her case, the learning or lack thereof. Well, Yesterday, um, the girls and Steph drove up for um, Steph for one night. She's coming back later. The girls for uh, most of this week uh, for the, with their grandparents for um, for their spring break. And so yesterday, after the drive, they ended up going to um, a place where they could do, like it was like a pioneer place. you could like see what a pioneer um, like home would look like. They got to like churn butter, um, which delicious. Not Butter's like one of the only things that, like it tastes great, but like not by itself. Um, unless if that's you, then you can be as strange as you want because we talked about that. Um, but recognizing that they were able to do different things. But then uh, one of the things they got to do was like mining for fake gold, right? Mining for gold. And so here's a picture of them from earlier about the, the pyrite. They're like, oh, this is the pyrite we got. And I got a picture. Uh, the next picture is a little bit more up close of the fool's gold. Pyrite is known as fool's gold. It was something that it would be an issue if you got this because you would think if this is back in the mining days and you received this and you saw all this gold, you think to yourself, okay, now now I have wealth and I could try to use it and I could be, I can make a better life for myself. I can have the good life because I have stuff, I have money, I have comfort. Larry Osborne in his book, Thriving in Babylon, unpacks the importance of not falling for fool's gold that the only way that we could see whether faith is, gold is real, is by going through a test. He says this, that counterfeit faith, excuse me, is especially deceptive. Because it's a lot like fool's gold. It not only fools others, it fools those who have it. They think they have something of great value, and in reality, they have nothing of value. In another part of his book, he contrasts this with the idea of when something's clearly not real, then it's not a big deal. He says, if I were to go to try to go to the store and use my Monopoly money to buy something, that would not be an issue. Why? Everyone knows it's fake. But when something looks real, when something feels real, when it's counterfeit bills that are actually more realistic looking and feeling, then it's harder to detect. How do you detect whether our faith is real? whether it's genuine. It's often not when we're experiencing the comforts of ease around us. It's often not when everything is going our way. It's often not when those moments where we look around and think everything's perfect. No, it's often when things, when there's suffering, heartache, brokenness, woundedness. It's when that off-ramp when we're going and we're like, okay, we're walking with God, and then we start to see the off-ramp of trying to like, this is too hard. I should just pull over. This is too much. I should give up. Do we keep on that road or do we pull off? Larry Osborne says it this way, the tests, these tests of our faith are not for God's benefit. He already knows what's real and what's not. They are for our sake. We need to know the truth. And if we're depending on something that's not dependable, we need to know before it's too late to do anything about it. So think about the last test that you may have had when it comes to following God or wondering if you should follow God or where you're in that journey. Was it something where you're like, God, I I followed you. I know you. I love you. Why am I going through this difficult time? Or why are my friends or my loved ones going through a difficult time? Why is my family struggling? Why are my kids going through this issue? Why are they struggling with it? Whatever it may be, we're allowed and our our faith needs to be tested because we need to know whether we are leaning into God enough. See, God can work all things for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. It doesn't mean that we just want to rush into every test without thinking, but it means that when the test arrives, when the pop quiz shows up, what will we do? How will we respond? And when God doesn't seem to answer the way we want, or doesn't seem to be speaking at all, will we keep listening? Will we keep staying on that road? So friends, if your faith has been tested Hear me, please. If your faith has been tested, that is not a sign that God has forsaken you. It's an invitation to draw closer to him. It doesn't mean he's given up on you. It means he wants to go deeper with you. It doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It means he loves you enough to figure out, help you figure out the truth of where you are with him And how you can draw closer to him. The test is not against you. It's for you. The good life. Distinguished. We stand out amongst the crowd. We look different. And we invite people into the difference of our lives. So that they can know that Jesus can make a difference in theirs as well. It's tested. Because the test doesn't mean God doesn't love you. It means he loves you enough to take you deeper. The good life, according to Daniel 6, is also one that is prayerful. It's one that is filled with prayer. Verse 10, we're going to jump down. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. A couple things I want to unpack there. First, the idea that he turned his, he, he, he opened up the window and he prayed three times a day. One of the books I read, and I can't remember which one it is right now, but talked about how all of us will either turn our face towards Jerusalem or turn our face towards where God is or the culture that we want to pursue to be more like God, I should say, because God's everywhere. Or we will turn our face towards Babylon. We'll turn our face towards our hope, or we'll turn our face towards our fears. We'll turn our face towards our struggles, or we'll turn our face towards the one who's with us in our struggles. He turned his face toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks, giving thanks to his God. They just decreed that anybody who prayed to anybody else for the next 30 days would go into the lion's den and Daniel's thanking God? Talk about responding to a test. And he he was giving thanks to God just as he had done before. This was not a last minute ditch effort. This was part of his life. The fact that he prayed three times, we don't know, to be honest, we don't know how much of the Old Testament or the Hebrew scriptures Daniel was fully aware of because he grew, like we said, between the ages of 14 through 18, he had ended up going into Babylon. And even before then, the culture around was not following God's commandments. They didn't follow the the word of the Lord as much or else they wouldn't have had to go into Babylon in the first place. So whether he knew about Psalm 55 or not, we do not know. But he lived out Psalm 55 incredibly clearly by praying three times a day. Why? Psalm 55, 16 through 18 says, As for me, I call to God and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress and he hears my voice. He rescues me unharmed from the battle waged against me, even though many oppose me. So you could see whether Daniel knew this verse or not, The word of God spoke in such a clear way and speaks to us now that three times a day he went and prayed. He cried out to God. And as we see in this last part, it talks about how God will rescue him unharmed. And he didn't even know what was coming or how he would get through Daniel 6. And yet it happens, even though many oppose me. Chris Hodges, who's the pastor of Church of the Highlands, his book, da- The Daniel Dilemma, is one that we've quoted several times in this series. He has, uh, they do 21 days of prayer um, every, t- every year. And on their website, when they talk about it, he says, many times people act first and then want God to bail them out of that situation. But prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort resort. This morning when I was getting ready to leave the house, uh, I, um, like I said, Steph's gone. She'll be back later today. And so I was driving the car and as I'm pulling out of the driveway, I heard that, um, that dreaded sound. It's like, go-goo, go go I pull out very slowly and I look at the back and my rear passenger tire was flat. Now, flat tires, never fun right? It's never like, oh, great. Um, flat tires when the only other car at the house is 100 miles away is not fun. Flat tires when, uh, you know, you have like to preach within the next few hours is not fun. Um, and so it's this idea of my first thought is, you know, what, what do I do? Like, what, what, do I, what do I do? Could you imagine if my first thought was, all right, well, I'm just going to start driving, and I'm going to ask God to just bail me out of this one. God, just, you know what? I know that the tire's flat, but would you just carry me? Not, just just bring me, you know, through Via Rancho with all the curves and down the freeway. Would you, just, would you just bail me out ahead of time? That probably would not have been the best option. Could you imagine if I said, all right, God, I know what I'm going to do. I am going to... Uh, you know, all the adrenaline's running, so I'm just gonna lift up the car myself. (laughs) Don't laugh, I could do it. Um, Like, would that work? No, and say, okay, God, can you give me the strength to to lift this, or can you heal my back after I destroy it? We ask God to bail us out. What did I do instead? I walked, and I'm just kidding. Um, I called Thomas, who lives in Vista, we live in Escondido, and he was able to swing by and pick me up and bring me here. Now, when I ask, what am I going to do? That's a simple prayer. I didn't just start driving. I didn't try to pick it up. I didn't do it. I just said, God, what, what should I do? And it's like, well, call Thomas. And I'm like, awesome. Got a ride, was able to make it, the car's parked on the side of the road, we'll figure it out, in front of our house, we'll figure it out later. But if my first response was not to ask for help, but to try to do things on my own, I'd be in more world of hurt and more trouble than we are now. When we ask for help from the right person at the right time, God opens a door. When we ask him for help in prayer, he opens the door that we need to follow. The good life, as I have a couple minutes left, is distinguished, it's tested, it's prayerful. Prayer ought to be our first response, not our last resort. And fourth, it's courageous. That Daniel faced the lion's den. That when the time came, they arrested him and he doesn't, he doesn't, oh, I wasn't really praying to God. He doesn't back away like Peter did when uh, he was questioned. He also, notice he also didn't, like protest or, or like rail against King Darius for his decree. He didn't like it. He also knew he wasn't going to follow it because it was a matter of he could not bow down to another God. He could not do that. He could not pray to a person. We cannot have any other idols. No one should take the Lord's name in vain. I mean, he knew this, but it takes courage to be distinguished. It takes courage to withstand the test. It takes courage to to kneel in prayer more so than trying to make things work on our own. It takes courage in order to have a kind of life that says it's okay to stand out. It's okay to speak truth. That there are some people in your life that may run to you when they have struggles or difficulties and they may not even know why they're reaching out to you, but you may not be aware of why they're reaching out to you, but The reality is that God has put them on their heart to reach out to someone who has the hope of Jesus in a time of difficulty. Is it possible that you could be courageous enough, even if it's as simple as, I'm praying for you, or how can I pray for you? As simple as, say, can I pray for you right now? Courageous enough to just let people know, not heavy-handedly or with picket signs, but with washing the feet of people who are hurting, serving, loving, caring, and speaking truth. To be courageous enough, to love people enough, to stand out enough that they'd want to follow Jesus enough. To be courageous. Chris Hodges in in the book continues on. He says, if you look at strong people of of faith, I believe you'll find in them tried and tested, fireproof, lion-proof faith. These people have as many problems as anyone else, but they also have something else. The promises of God in his word. And friends, the courage to act on them. We can know the stories in God's word of great courage. But we could say, well, that's just, that was David. David was able to stand before Goliath. I can't do that. Oh, that was Peter. Peter was able to walk on water. I can't do that. Oh, Elijah was able to face on Mount Carmel 450 pagan prophets, but I can't do that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to stand in the fire, but I can't do that. Daniel was able to pray and face the lion's then, but I can't do that. Friends, they had problems just like us. And the truth is we can have the courage just like them. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of power and love and self-discipline, self-control that God can encourage in us. He could give us, put courage in us in our moments of greatest need. You can do this. Be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified or discouraged for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Lastly, the good life according to Daniel 6 is impactful. It has an impact. I'm going to jump down now because he goes into the lion's den. Darius is already regretful of his decision. He realizes he's been tricked by the satraps and prefects and other administrators and all the other people, but he can't go back on his word. He just started his new reign. He can't be the king that all of a sudden changes the rules for his favorites. So he has to go ahead and just say, okay, this is the law and God, or excuse me, Daniel, may the God that you serve, may he protect you. May he look after you. Talked about how at the first light of dawn, it's not on the, the scripture, but just verse 19. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. Right away, he couldn't sleep. He was going right away. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice. He cared. He wanted to know, Daniel, son, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Notice how he could have just had someone go in and check, But he had enough of a question to actually ask Daniel and expected a response. Daniel answered, may the king live forever. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I done anything wrong against you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 26, 25, excuse me. And King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language and all the earth. May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is a living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. See, when we live lives that are distinguished, tested, prayerful, and courageous, the impact will come on its own. And let me be really clear. Daniel survived the lion's den, right? So we could look at, oh, his faith must have been so great. And it was. But Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, was martyred as the first martyr. Was his faith any less? No. Hebrews 11, we talked about this recently, that there are a list of people in the Old Testament that... God had shown their great faith and that God had rescued them. And then it switches to say, and yet others were sawed in two, imprisoned, beheaded, cut in half with the sword. Where they were lost, they were in jail. So, and yet they were still faithful. So friends, if you're being tested right now, and you are not experiencing, you feel like God's leaving you or you're not there... Or if things even after the test have not panned out the way you wanted them to. That does not mean that God's forsaken you. It also doesn't mean that when the tests aren't the way, that we don't get the answers back that we want. God can still have a great impact through you. Daniel, rescue from the lion's den all across the nations, of the world, Darius says, praise the one true God, reverence him, fear him, because he moves, he moves miracles, excuse me, does miracles. He moves signs and wonders. He's above and beyond. There's a great impact. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr of the church, his, he died. He wasn't rescued. There wasn't a shield that blocked all the stones from hitting him. And yet, because of his faith, and because of his sacrifice, the gospel was then pushed out of Jerusalem, and then started to go into Judea and Samaria in Acts chapter 8, and then we start to see how it goes to the ends of the earth, so that Jesus' words in Acts 1-8 came to fruition. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. So, in the same way that all the peoples of the earth found out about God through Daniel 6 and him being rescued from the lions, all the people in the ends of the earth found out about Jesus and his love for them through the death of Stephen. Both were impactful, both shared of who God is, and both brought glory to God. So, what does it look like to live the good life? Maybe you're experiencing some of these things, maybe you're not, but I want to close with Jonathan Edwards' quote, an American preacher, part of the Great Awakening, start riv- uh, revivals um, early on. He said this Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. That the good life is not one where everything's perfect. It's not comfort, it's not ease, it's not money. It's not popularity. It's not possessions. The good life is one in which we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That we know that no matter what we face, we may be distinguished. We may be tested. We can be prayerful. We need courage. And we can have an impact that God can use. Not because of our own goodness, but because of his. Not because we have it all together, but because he does. And whether our story ends miraculously like Daniel or difficultly like Stevens, all can be used for the glory of God and the power of the Holy Spirit for the spreading of the gospel so that people who now are in the world would come to see that there's a greater world at the end. Eternal life that is offered to anyone who would want to receive it. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for the fact that You are here with us wherever here is, God, whether we're in person, online, wherever we may be. Lord, I pray that you would be speaking to each person, Lord, that if we're struggling, may you reveal yourself to us. If we are hurting, may you help us to know that you still love us. If we are on our journey and we don't even know if we want to come to know you, we don't know where we are, we're just here and we're listening. God, I pray that you would honor those who are here right now, that I haven't made that commitment to you, but may you honor their desire to come here today and to listen. May you speak to them in a way that only you can. And may you give them and all of us the hope to be in the world, but still remain firm enough to not be of it so that we can share with people about the hope that we have in you. Father, we, we love you. We thank you. We thank you that no matter how our stories end, you can be glorified when we are distinguished, tested, prayerful, and when we are courageous enough to follow you no matter what it looks like. May you use us to impact your, king, your world, this world for your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to the podcast. We want to be a church where people are changed by God to change the world. If you want to partner with us in this way, you can start by doing these two things. The first, if you haven't subscribed to this podcast, you can do that by hitting the subscribe button wherever you're listening so you can stay connected with us and we can broaden our reach. And the second, and this might be the most important thing you do, share this message with someone you know. And as always, remember you are prayed for, cared for, and loved. See you next time.